It's a banner evening. We have no announcements. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. In the Psalms, we read, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. When we sin, it uh, fractures that relationship with God, not our eternal relationship, just our day-to-day rapport, that walk by means of the Spirit, walking in the light, abiding in Christ. But when we confess sin, then that's restored. That's why it's important to do that. So we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we all are reminded of that and need to uh, confess sin, admit, acknowledge our sin to God, and instantly we're cleansed and forgiven of all sin. So let's bow our heads together, and after a few moments of silent prayer, I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your word that exposes the sinfulness of each one of us, exposes the sinfulness of sin and its corrupting influence on our thinking, on our opinions, on our attitudes, on our emotions and inclinations and drives. And Father, we know that the only solution is your solution. We have to come to the cross and we're all sinners and we're only saved one way, and that's the same for every one of us, and we have to trust in Christ who gave his life for us. So, Father, as we study this evening, help us to understand the importance of dealing with uh, people who are enmeshed in sin, whose thinking is distorted, warped, clouded because of sin, and help us to understand how to deal with them in grace and love and not being uh, reactionary or judgmental. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. We have been studying our passage in Second Peter. Now, what we looked at in Second Peter, and we need to constantly emphasize this, is that Peter has warned that there are false teachers that are about to come, and that there will be judgment on them. God indeed will judge them, maybe not on our timetable, but on his timetable. And so he gives several examples, starting in verse 4, to demonstrate the principle of verse 9, that the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. That's important to recognize that's what he's doing. So he's giving examples of different events from the Old Testament to demonstrate this. The first one was that God did not spare the angels, that is, the sons of God in Genesis 6 when they sinned. Uh, He cast them to the lake of fire, but he spared. He dealt with, with Noah in grace. 
That wasn't because Noah was sinless. It was that he was righteous because he had trusted in the promise of God just like Abraham uh, did several generations, centuries maybe, after, uh, after after Noah. Abraham believed God and it was imputed to him as righteousness. It is that imputed righteousness that is what gives us access to God, not anything on our part because our hearts are still deceitful and wicked above all things. And so we need to recognize that we're, we're no better than the next person. Their sins may be more socially unacceptable in our opinion than our sins, but our sins are not socially acceptable to the other person either. So we have to deal with people in grace, and that's how God is dealing with them. He offers perfect righteousness by faith in the promise of God. He gives it when sinners trust in Christ. He does not make them sinless. He does not reduce the impact of their sin nature. He does not take away those inclinations that come from our sin nature, but he does because of our identification with Christ in this church age, he does break the power of the sin nature. Although we still continue and have all of the same uh, proclivities that we had before we were saved, and we might even have a few extra ones thrown in. Because if you're like me and you got saved when you were four, five, six, seven, eight years of age, you really didn't have that much of a repertoire of sins. But by the time you hit high school or college or your 20s or 30s, you had corrected that problem all by yourself, as I did. So God deals with us in grace. So the first example comes from the flood, judgment on the angels that rebelled against God, and grace toward Noah and his, his family. And then judgment on the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and grace to uh, righteous Lot. He's righteous, as we saw, not by his behavior, because it certainly wasn't righteous behavior, but because he, like his um, uncle uh, Abraham, had trusted the promise of God and had received the righteousness imputed to him. And so we're still looking at this issue with Sodom because it's so much a part of our uh, cultural distress today. And um, last time I looked at Old Testament passages, I looked at uh, Genesis 19, I did not look at Judges 19, but it is a very close parallel. There are a number of words that are identical in both passages because the writer of Judges is saying that Gibeah is just as bad as Sodom and Gomorrah. And and when I then we went to Ezekiel 16, and the point there is the sins of Jerusalem and Judah were being compared to Sodom, and so God is identifying Jerusalem as Sodom, giving them a nickname because they are emulating all of the sins of Sodom, which no longer existed because it had been judged. Uh, back in the time of Abraham, which was roughly around 2000 to 2100 uh, B.C. And by the time you get to uh, the time of, of Ezekiel, it's roughly 590. So it's a good uh, 1400 years after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. 
but it points out in that illustration that there's uh, that their root sin is the sin of pride and arrogance, which is the root of all sins, really. Every one of our sins goes back to our arrogance that we think we can define reality instead of letting God define reality. And that's one of the things we're seeing right now in our culture, and it's just gotten on steroids, is these various aspects of this new developing worldview that is capturing the media capturing many of our young people uh, is is grounded in this kind of an arrogance. They're redefining words. They're redefining concepts. They want to redefine reality according to their their own terms. And so they're just taking the moral relativism of postmodernism and taking it to a new level. And a big part of that is in this whole thing of, of critical race uh, theory, and that's that the core of it is redefining all of these terms. So we have to be uh, careful how we handle it, and be careful not to feel the social pressure from unbelieving pagans who want it to conform us into their mold. Because Ro- Romans twelve two says that we're not to be conformed to the world, but transformed by the renewing of our mind. And this is going to put Christians in a lot of pressure, especially those who are in the workforce, those who are working for major corporations, those who are public school teachers, and it's going to differ from region to region and town to town and school district to school district, but they're going to uh, come under uh, a lot of pressure, and they're going to be kids that go home and tell their parents that they said this or used that word or this word, and then the parents will come down and accuse them of being racist, and it's just going to be a, a, a real nasty, nasty mess. But the world's been in a nasty mess before, and it is actually in a continuous state of nasty, of a nasty mess. It's just that it's, it's more uh, obvious to us today, and it's much more in our face. So as I ended last time, I said we would transition this time to look at what the New Testament says about homosexuality. There are, there's a lot of confusion about homosexuality. There's confusion about homosexuality on the part of the alphabet group, LGBTQP. All of those folks have their ideas that they were born this way or that they have some, there's some sort of genetic uh, gene, or some sort of gene that has determined that they're that way. It may not have been found yet, but they hold out hope that it will be. And, and various other things that are going on, and they have myths about Christians, and their myths about Christians is that, that uh, Christians hate homosexuals. They don't understand the distinction between sin and the sinner. They believe that uh, Christianity teaches that they're all going to go to the lake of fire because of their sin, and that's not true. But unfortunately, there are a lot of Christians who have myths, and part of their mythology is that homosexuality is a unique sin. It's a distinctive sin, and we have to wipe it out, blot it out, and be mean to homosexuals and lots of other things. There's no understanding of grace whatsoever. And so this sort of legalistic arrogance, which is, which is just another 
area of arrogance is just as sinful and just as bad as the activities of homosexuals. So we have to look at what the Scripture says to make sure we have the right uh, perspective and right attitude. So we're going to look at three passages tonight. We're going to look at Romans 1, 18 to 32. Then we'll go to 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 12, which is uh, famously misinterpreted. And then we'll look at 1 Timothy 1, 9 through 10, and then wrap up by just looking at some of the, uh, some, some of the distortions of truth that plague this particular discussion. We always have to remember that everybody is a corrupt, spiritually dead sinner when they come into this world. And the inclination of their thinking is always towards rebellion against God. And the only by the grace of God do they hear the gospel and do they respond to the gospel and trust in Christ as Savior. But nobody is better in God's eyes than anyone else. We are all alienated from the life of God. We're all dominated by our sin nature. We're all born slaves of the sin nature. And there's just uh, nothing that any of us can do about it. And so there's no reason whatsoever to look at others and their particular sins with the, a sense that I'm better than you are. And unfortunately, that characterizes uh, too many Christians. It may be a caricature, but it is, a, it is one that has a foundation in truth. So we're going to start off by looking at Romans 1, 18 to 32, and then 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 12, and then 1 Timothy 1, 9 through 10, and I didn't have room in the title bar there to put the First Timothy reference. So if we turn to Romans 1, take a look at Romans 121. We're going to start here and work our way backward to verse 18, and then we'll jump back to verse 22 and go forward. In Romans 121, we read, because, so this is stating the reason or the cause for action that would be described in verse 20, and uh, that verse begins with a for, which tells you it's also an explanation of the verse before, which is verse 19, which begins with the because, and then even the verse before that starts with the for. So it's a developing stage, and what we're getting to in verse 21 is the end result. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. Now, when we look at this verse, we see that in this summation, really, that there is a progress. Notice the progress. It says, because although they knew God. So it's a clear statement that the they knew God, that they weren't without God. They weren't ignorant of God. No matter how much they say they're ignorant of God, how much they say, well, you just can't convince me God exists. I just don't believe it. I don't see any evidence that there's a God. And they may come up with all kinds of significant rationales, and they may write books and argue till they're blue in the face that they don't believe in God. They know in their souls, in their heart of hearts, that God exists. 
And that sort of gives us a bit of an edge because our desire is for them to come to understand the love of God which was demonstrated at the cross in Christ Jesus. Our job is not to win an argument. Our job is not to beat them over the head with how wrong they are. Our job is to communicate that, that just as we are the recipients of the unmerited love of God, so they are the recipients of the unmerited love of God. And the, the, the pronoun here, the uh, third person plural, they, refers generally to the histor- historic rejection of God following uh, the flood, following the Tower of Babel. Although they knew God, it's stating it very clearly that they did know God, they did two things. These two things are the, are the sins that are highlighted in verse 21. This becomes the foundation for everything that comes after verse 21. Number one, they didn't glorify him as God. Now, we've studied the word glorified many times. What does it mean to, glo- to glorify God. What does it mean when we talk about God's glory? And, and I pointed out that this is often used as a summary term for all of God's essence, for who God is. All of his attributes are his glory. And the other idea that we have in glory comes from the, the basic meaning of the word that is used, especially in Hebrews, the word kavod, so the Greek word is based on that Old Testament word, and the core meaning of kavod is heavy. And what it means is something is heavy. It's really important. It's extremely significant. So, <coughs> so to glorify God, what that means is we're demonstrating in our life that God is important. God is significant. He's the a most significant thing in the in the universe, most significant thing in the world. Without God, nothing continues to exist. Nothing is sustained. Without God, there really is no life, and there's no meaning, and there's no purpose. So to say that they didn't glorify him as God, meaning they're trying to cut God out completely of their lives, they're trying to live as if God is unnecessary and irrelevant to everything that is going on, just like the uh, Democrat um, senator said last week when somebody was making a comment about, uh, another senator was making a comment about uh, how God would view what's going on, and a Democrat senator said that God has nothing whatsoever to do with anything that takes place in the Senate. So that is just his his uh, arrogance. That's what that is the picture of the unbeliever. He wants it to be true that God is irrelevant to him, so that he can do whatever he wants to. And he, I, I've often talked about this. It's somebody who has goes goes down five levels of basement in their soul, and then digs a deep, deep hole shoves God into the hole, covers him over with concrete, and then continues to fill each layer above that with more and more concrete so he doesn't have to ever think about God. And every now and then things happen, and all God has to do is just sort of think about it, and that concrete that that the unbeliever has put there 
to keep God away just cracks and disappears. And when that happens, the unbeliever just goes nuts. He does not want God anywhere, and they hate God. And that's what we're going to see in this passage. They just hate God. So, first of all, they don't glorify Him as God, nor are they thankful. And what's interesting is in some of these communities, in the homosexual community, they pride themselves on being hospitable and on being, being kind and grateful. But God's, God's view of them is that they're ungrateful because they have rejected God who has given them life and uh, given them everything. So uh, they know God, they, as a, but they don't glorify him as God, and they're ingrates. And the result of that, see the next line says, but became. So the result of their rejection of God is that they become futile in their thoughts. And that word for futile means something that is empty, something that is uh, pointless, something that is useless and worthless. So they're thinking. So think. remember this, that no matter who you're talking to, if they are an unbeliever, they've rejected God, their, their thinking is really going to be convoluted. It's going to be confused. And today we really see this because every day on the news, if you have the stomach to watch the news, uh, you're going to hear people talk about things and you're going to say, that makes absolutely no logical sense whatsoever. Well, this is what the Bible says. Their thinking uh, is futile and their foolish hearts are, dark are darkened. So the root core sin here is a rejection of God. And as a result of that, they do two things. They don't glorify God, and they're ungrateful. Now, when this verse starts off and it says, because, that takes us back to the previous verse. So let's back up one verse. And in verse 20, we read, For since the creation of the world... His invisible attributes. Actually, what it says in the Greek is his invisibles. And what it's talking about is his, his, you can't see God, you can't see his characteristics, but you can see what he produces. And so you can deduce from what he has created the kind of mind that must be there, the kind of, of planning uh, that must be there, and it just gives you enough of a hint of the reality of God and his character that you, we're not going to be able to say to God, well, we didn't have any evidence. There's enough there so that everyone is without excuse. That's how the verse ends. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. I just love the way this is translated. It would, it's a little different if you did a direct translation from the Greek, but they, they did a great job getting our attention here by, by capturing the sense. His invisibles are clearly manifest, being understood by the things that are made. So we look at what's made and we can extrapolate back uh, to, to the, the maker. Even his eternal power and Godhead so that with the result that they're without excuse. That means 
that when they show up at the great white throne judgment, they can come up with all kinds of rationales and God's just going to look at them and they're going to melt because they know that none of it works. They're, they, it, 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 it's impossible. So that four at the beginning of verse 20 takes us back to the two preceding verses. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now, what you ought to do as you take notes in your Bible is point out that this is the topical sentence for the rest of chapter 1. The wrath of God, and we're going to see how the wrath of God is displayed through progressive stages of God removing the restraint on the human heart so that it can follow its evil desires to the fullest. So the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. So when we get down and start going at the verses after 21, we're going to see a lot of sins mentioned. That's what is meant in this general phrase, all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And those who are ungodly and unrighteous are the ones who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So when we're living in a post-Christian culture, when we're living in a world where people have, the majority of the culture have rejected God and they're suppressing truth, they're trying to keep the door locked on God deep in the basement. Um, they are creating a major problem for us. Um, God's wrath will be, he will bring discipline. The wrath here is not an eschatological judgment. It's not a judgment in the future. It's not talking about the lake of fire. It's talking about the fact that God in his justice must act when sin reaches a certain level. So the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. <clears throat> there are times when a culture does not suppress truth in unrighteousness, and God does not engage in letting, letting these stages develop. But when they are suppressing truth in unrighteousness, then that's what happens. And he, he, it, his wrath is revealed in verse 19 because what may be known about God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. So number one, they, every person you talk to, I don't care how much they claim to be an atheist, and that there's no evidence of God, God says in their soul, deep in their soul, there is the knowledge of God. And uh, it's manifest in them, and ex internally and externally, God shows it to them. And that's why when you get to verse 21, when Paul says, because although they knew God... They can protest all they want, but they have known God. Everybody comes to a point of God consciousness at some stage in their growth. 
Now, it's going to differ from culture to culture because some cultures are very primitive and there's no discussion about God or they may grow up in a home where there's never any discussion about God. And it may be sometime much later before they reach God consciousness. But if they grow up in a Christian home and parents are doing what I encourage parents to do, and that is from the time they're, even when they're in the cradle, is talk to them about God. Read scripture to them. Give them the gospel. And their little minds are absorbing all of that, even though they can't talk and they really don't have the vocabulary yet. It's helping to shape and to form those possibilities in in their head. And you and I don't want our kids to get very old before they understand the gospel and they respond in faith. And I was six. I don't really remember a whole lot spiritually before that, but I was six when my parents sat me down and explained the gospel. But many years ago, I knew a woman who was um, a teacher for Child Evangelism Fellowship. And in the afternoons, she would go to two or three different homes during each week and conduct a five-day club or a good news club. And so they would uh, meet, and she would do the flannel graph stories and tell the Bible stories. And at the end, she would tell the children that if any of them wanted to know how to go to heaven when they die, how to accept God's free gift of eternal life, then to tell her, and she would help answer their questions and help them understand uh, all about salvation. Well, one day... She always took her two-year-old girl with her, and little Ginger was about two and a half or so. And one day when they went back out to the car and sat down, Ginger turned to her and said, Mommy, why don't you ever ask me if I want to believe in Jesus? I think when somebody says that, they've already believed in Jesus. And here she is uh, between two and three But she was able to grasp it, and she had reached God consciousness very, very early because her parents talked about it all the time, and she heard her mother teach the Bible stories every time. So it it, it may vary. There, There are cultures where people grow up, and they may not hear anything about God until they're 15, 16, 17 years old. So God consciousness which is the definition of the age of accountability. You're not accountable until you reach God consciousness. Very, some people want to put a, put a particular year on it, but it doesn't have a particular year. It depends on each person and their culture and their mentality and lots of other factors as to when they reach that point when they can understand and comprehend that they are a creature and that there is a God, and at that point they're either going to turn to God or they're going to turn away from God. So that's what this is talking about. Every single person has reached that point of God consciousness, and if they aren't positive, if they don't desire to know more about God, then from that point on they are truth suppressors, and from that point on they are living in their own fantasy world and it gets worse and worse and worse as time goes by. And so the bottom line is, God says, professing to be wise. They have degrees, multiple degrees, from some of the most outstanding universities in the the world. And they think they are brilliant, but because they have rejected God, they're 
fools. They are, and that goes back to what the Old Testament says in the Psalms, that the fool has said in his heart, there is no God, because he's trying to suppress reality. And so he rejects God. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. And so this is talking about the historical origin of idolatry and making figures of animals and birds and other aspects of nature and then our cre- God's creation and then worshiping it. So they're worshiping the creature or the creation uh, rather, than, uh, rather than God. So they have... Uh, they're tr- starting to redefine reality. Now, in, when this new worldview that's developing and has been developing in America for about the last 20 or 30 years, and this whole idea of critical race theory, they're trying to redefine everything. And, and that's the same idea, is they're trying to make up their new, a new reality. And so it brings judgment. And there are three stages of judgment here in the following verses. And the first stage is mentioned in 124. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. So there's, there's a, a one aspect is the lust that's internal. It's their mental attitude sins. And then that leads to external overt sins. Their basic problem is that, verse 25, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. See, they think they're independent. They think they're autonomous. They think that there's nothing greater than them, and they don't realize that they are enslaved. They are enslaved to their own sin nature. They, the irony is that they have mentally enslaved themselves to the creation. They worship the creation. This is part of the problem in the whole uh, movement dealing with environmentalism. Now, the Bible talks about a responsible use of the resources that God gives us. But the in, the in the green movement, it is couched within the framework of paganism and the worship of the creation. And Mark Musser, who's spoken here before and spoken at the Chafer Conference, has written a book uh, dealing with this, and it is heavy on philosophy because he traces back all these philosophical con- concepts to the romanticism of the early 19th century and traces how that impacted the great thinkers of the 19th century, Hegel and Marx and Freud, and all of these ideas built an ideological foundation that eventually gave birth to Nazism. That doesn't mean that everybody was a Nazi. He's not saying that, or that anybody who's an environmentalist is a Nazi, but that this was part of their thinking. And uh, actually, I saw something recently or read something recently that, that triggered this, this memory is that a part, of the, a part of the anti-Semitic, the, the Jew hatred that came out in Germany 
was because of their, they, they realized that Genesis 1 was talking about human responsibility to take care of, to take care of and to develop the resources of God's creation. And this runs 180 degrees opposite the views of this pantheistic um, earth worship that started with the romanticism of the early 19th century. And so as a result of that, that was just another reason to hate the Jews is because the Jews had this verse in their Bible that said that man was to responsibly use and develop creation and this ran counter to the the ideology of their uh, of their pantheism so they are enslaved to their sin nature and they enslave themselves to the creation and they worship and see the word served there also can have the connotation of enslavement they worshiped and enslaved themselves to the creature rather than the the creator now the problem originates in the heart. The heart is a term that doesn't refer to the physical organ. In most cases, it refers to the core of something. We talk about that. You can get a salad and you can put hearts of palm on it. That comes from the center of the palm. So you, you, this, it's an idiom in English for the center of something, and the same thing was true in, in Hebrew and in Greek. So it's the center of man, which is his soul, and the thinking in his soul, and it's the lust that comes out of that 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 leads to the overt sins. So we just have a quick review of the of the sin nature here. Part of the inner part of the sin nature is the lust pattern that I have up there. Then the lust patterns that the lust drive, motivate, uh, put give direction to uh, the sin nature. And you have all kinds of lust. Most people think of lust only in terms of sexual lust, but you have lust for money. Uh, lust for money and lust for the things that money can buy. You have lust for power. And this is, um, you want to really get enmeshed in this, go to any state capitol or city hall or go to uh, Washington, D.C., and you will see so many people who just want to either have the power or be close to those who have power. And it's powerless. We, we want approval. We want recognition. We want to be famous. We want to be somebody, and that's approbation lust. And we have sexual lust. There's, I, I know that this is hard for some of you to deal with, but there's food lust. And there's alcohol lust, and there's there's uh, drug lust. It's things that give us pleasure. And what we're doing is, is we all need a lot of these things. There's nothing wrong with food, and there's nothing wrong with alcohol inherently, and there's nothing wrong with many of these things that are objects of lust. But we are assigning to those things a meaning and a value and a significance that makes them absolutely necessary to find pleasure or happiness or stability or dull the pain of existence, whatever it may be. And so these lusts drive us. In 1 Peter 2.11, Peter says that we are to abstain from the fleshly lusts that make war against the soul. So that tells us one thing, that these fleshly lusts are not part of the soul, but they make war against the soul. And it is destructive to the soul when we are pursuing uh, the fulfillment of our of our lusts. 
Now, I'm not going to go through everything that is in the rest of this chapter. What I did today was I broke it down for us into a list. There are a lot of sins here. You can read this whole list, and if your proclivity is homosexuality or lesbianism, that's the only thing you see. But, but notice the progression here. First of all, you have the root sin, which is rejection of God. And it resulted in not glorifying God, and they were ungrateful, and they worshiped the creation instead of the creator. And that meant that they were into idolatry. So that's at the very core. And whenever we're putting anything above God, it's idolatry. In Colossians chapter 3, Paul says greed is idolatry. It is making money, looking at money as if it can provide for us what only God can provide. And so then there's a first level uh, thing that happens in verse 24. Verse 24 says, therefore God also gave them up. You ought to look at that. that. There are three times God gives them up. God says, oh, you want to run down that road of pleasure? Let me just pull back the restraints a little bit and let you go and see if you can realize how self-destructive you become. And then as you run down that road and you continue to wallow in all of those sins, God said, oh, you want more of it? Okay, I'll pull back the restraints a little more. In other words, these three levels of sins that are mentioned are the results. They are not the cause of the degeneration. They are the results of the rejection of God. They are not the cause of cultural collapse. It is the rejection of God. So the first level produces, and I've underlined some because they show up in these other sin lists we're going to look at in uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 10. There's another sin list in Galatians uh, chapter 5, uh, 22 to 24. There's another sin list in Revelation. Uh, it's Revelation 21 verses, about verses uh, 4 through 7, something along there. And they're all different. They're not the same list of sins. And a lot of those sins aren't mentioned here. So when you want to create a list of sin, the Bible gives us all kinds of sins. And notice the first level, when God gives them over, he gives them over to uncleanness, which is just a general word for the filth of sin. It just destroys the, our, our whole mental attitude, it, it, whether, you think you, whether you like it, whether you love it, whether you think you're having fun or joy, uh, it ultimately is going to bring bad consequences into our lives. I remember one year I was uh, in high school, I think I was a senior, went on a ski trip with uh, Camp Penile up to uh, Colorado, and I was a high school kid, so I was just there to have fun. And in each, in each uh, hotel room, there were, I, I think we could put about four or five people, and one was the, the counselor. And each night they would have a little devotional. And so this counselor was talking, and he made a statement in his, in his devotional that, that sin really isn't any fun. And I said, I interrupted him, and I said, wait a minute, that's not right. Sin is a lot of fun. And so we got into an argument there. And I always wanted to come back to him and say, well, this is 60 years later. Don't you think sin's fun? Within about four or five years, he 
decided to drop out of Dallas Seminary, and he had an affair with somebody and left his wife and, you know, just went through a whole progression of things. I always wanted to say, didn't you think you were, you were having fun at those, those times? Because sin appeals to us. So that's the uncleanness. It's just this broad general term. And then we see uh, the next one is lusts of the heart and then dishonor their bodies exchanging the truth of God for a lie. That's all the first level. So when people are replacing the Bible and Christianity, the culture is already under God's judgment because of of the ongoing sin, because there are those who are rejecting him. So that's level one. It's not the cause. The cause is that in their hearts they rejected God. It's the consequences of of rejecting God. And then we get to the second level, and that's described in verses 26 to 27 as vile passions, lesbianism, uh, male homosexuality. That's the second level. We're not to the third level yet. This is the result of rejection of God. When you get a culture that gets you just mired in rejection of God, then this is what's going to manifest itself. It is not the cause of cultural collapse. It is a consequence of cultural collapse because of rejection of God. Then we get to the third level. Everything in the second and third columns are the third level where it just these things just explode. It's not that they're not there before, but now there's no restraints. Okay, remember there used to be cultural restraints. And so if a a high school girl got pregnant, it was shameful, and they went off someplace where they were isolated until the pregnancy finished, and and it was embarrassing. There's no embarrassment anymore over just about anything. You can come out when you're eight years old and say, I'm really a girl, and I want things cut off and changed and everything else, and And even the government will pay for it. They just think this is now wonderful. It's a debased mind. Notice how many times the emphasis is on the heart or on thinking. A debased mind doing unfit things. It always starts in the mind, and then it goes to external activities. Doing unfit things filled with unrighteousness, sexual immorality, mentioned in Galatians 5 and other passages, covetousness, wickedness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit. Uh, Several of those, the murder, the strife, are mentioned in, I didn't underline them, but they're mentioned in Galatians 5. Uh, Murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness, whispers. These are people who tell lies, whisper behind the back with fake news. This is slanderers, gossips, those who are tale-bearers backbiters, uh, haters of God, uh, and haters of those that represent God, that is, Christians, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, and unmerciful. That's what's coming down the road. We're seeing a lot of it around already. So verse 32 closes this out by concluding and saying, who, that is those who do all these things, knowing the righteous judgment of God. See, they know it in their heart of hearts, they know it. 
that those who practice such things are deserving of death. They know that. They know that. You get, you get honest with some people in the homosexual community and, and they go to church cause, and they're doing very good things. They, they work in, um, uh, in helping those who are uh, all kinds of social help programs, helping those kids learn how to read, uh, helping in hospitals, doing good deeds because deep in their heart they're trying to, they're trying to balance the ledger. Unfortunately, God doesn't work that way. Those who practice such things are deserving of death. They not only do the same, that is, they keep doing these same sins, but they also approve of those who practice them. And in the uh, LGBTQ issue, the issue is for Christians, for most Christians, really isn't that 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 they're committing these sins. There have been homosexuals throughout all of history. It is that they are trying to use the legislative power of the United States of America and the world to force Christians to say it's okay. And unfortunately, there are too many Christians who really aren't taught very much and pastors who are validating uh, and going along with these myths that they're, they're, they're born that way, so we have to validate it. The New American Standard translates it that they also give hearty approval to those who practice them. And the Holman Christian Study Bible says, but even applaud those who practice them. And we see that today. We see it on the news. We see on the cover of Time magazine this this uh, young boy who's gone through a sex change operation, and this is applauded. They're celebrities because of what they're doing. This is what hap- happens as a result of taking God out of the classroom and God out of the culture and God out of the pulpit in many, many churches. Okay, let's look at the second passage, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 12. I think this is a passage that has caused a lot of Christians to have a legalistic and bad attitude uh, specifically about homosexuals. But there's a lot of other sins that are listed here. That's not highlighted as some super, super sin. What Paul says is, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Look at all the different sins that are mentioned here. Fornicators, anybody who's been involved in sexual relations outside of marriage comes under that category. Nor idolaters. These are those who at any time, you've gotten greedy, you've gotten a little lustful for material things. Paul says greed is idolatry. I think every one of us, if we're honest, have, have at one time or another worshipped something other than God, no matter how good you've tried to be. Uh, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards. We live in a world with, where Madison Avenue, where advertising is directed to the covetous part of our sin nature day in and day out. As when we watch commercials or look at advertisements, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortion, extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. 
And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. And so when you have this phrase, inherit the kingdom, a lot of people take that to mean that's equal to getting saved and going to heaven when you die. If that's true, we're all sunk because you look not only these sins, but add to this list the other lists of sins. For example, in uh, Galatians uh, chapter 5, you look at Galatians chapter 5 and Paul has another list and he ends that the same way by saying those who do these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. In uh, Galatians 5, I misstated the verse earlier, 519, the works of the flesh are evident, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, and then adds lewdness. We haven't had that one in there yet. Idolatry we've had in Romans 1. Sorcery, haven't had that in Romans 1 or in uh, 1 Corinthians uh, 6. Hatred, we had hatred of God in Romans 1. This is just hatred contentions that somebody who's argumentative about everything always creating disruption jealousies outbursts of wrath uh, abusive uh, selfish ambitions dissensions heresies envy murders drunkenness revelries and the like now heresies you may say well how does that apply to today well let, let me tell you i read an article this morning about a pastor who was saying that Jesus was a racist because he called the Syrophoenician woman a dog. And the writer of the article did an outstanding job explaining the cultural realities at that time that the Jews referred to those who are outside the covenant of Abraham as dogs, just as the, because dogs weren't pets in the ancient world. Dogs are scavengers, and you kept them outside of the house. And they didn't have access to the blessings inside the house. And so this was a standard idiom that was used. And it wasn't racist. They were just using a a very vivid metaphor. And so when Jesus refers to the Gentiles as dogs, he says this woman comes to him and wants him to heal his daughter and says, woman, what do I have to do with you? Because at that point in his ministry, he's just going to the Jews. And he says, what have I got to do with you? And and she says, uh, even the, the, the uh, dogs get the crumbs from the table. And so this is a very sophisticated argument. She says, even those who are not members of the covenant community like Israel get blessing by association. And so she's arguing for Jesus to bless her by association. There's nothing in there that is racist. But this pastor says that now Jesus is racist. Extrapolate that. Others will pick up on that theme. See, Jesus is a racist and Christians are racist. And if Christians are racist and that's the worst sin in the world, we have to get rid of all the Christians because they're all just a bunch of racists if they love Jesus. That's heresy to say Jesus sinned. That's what they're saying. That is heresy. And this isn't the first time I've read someone, uh, some preacher, make that argument. So we've got a real problem there. So do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? If this means getting into heaven, then there's a lot of us who think that, that we're getting into heaven that won't get there. Inherit the kingdom 
doesn't mean getting into heaven. So we have to look at what that means. The word does not mean to enter. To enter means that it would make that going to heaven when you die. It doesn't mean that. Second, enter must be equated uh, in their view with salvation, and then salvation would be based on works. I didn't commit adultery. I wasn't homosexual. I wasn't a murderer. I didn't do any of those things so I can get to heaven. Uh, That doesn't make sense because the Apostle Paul says we're saved by grace and not by works. Another view that we see is that no believer can, no real believer, no genuine believer, no one who has sincerely, truly, genuinely believed the gospel can commit these sins. And so immediately if somebody has a problem with homosexuality or with any of these other lust patterns, they can't be truly saved. That is legalism, that is a false gospel, and that has nothing whatsoever to do with Christianity. There's no love of God in that whatsoever. And there are a a lot of Christians and a lot of churches and some denominations, and that's what they firmly believe. And it it makes causes unbelievers to think that all Christians are legalists and hateful like that. Another view is that you can lose your salvation. So your view of eternal security and assurance of salvation is at risk. And it also leads to those saying that, well, Jesus didn't die for all sins because they're not going, it's not possible for them to be saved. And it makes this uh, uh, sin that Christ didn't die for and that God's grace didn't cover and that God's omniscience was, was ignorant of. But omniscience means he knows everything. So how can he be ignorant of anything? It, it, it's, it's a heretical gospel to do that. So what we see here, to just cover it very briefly, when we read this phrase, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, we have to define unrighteous contextually. Because these words can mean different things in different contexts. Most people will go to the first verse in the chapter. Notice this is down in verse 9. That's a long way from verse 1. Verse 1 says, Paul is, uh, um, is correcting them because they, they're having these squabbles in the church, which is showing the arrogance that's in the church. And, he is, he, and they're taking each other to court to let unbelievers decide uh, the problems. And so Paul says, uh, dare any of you having a matter against another Go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints. So in this context, the word adikos, unrighteous, dikos meaning righteous, adikos meaning unrighteous, not righteous, that that's clearly in contrast to a believer. But we have the use of the verbal form of this noun twice immediately preceding verse 9. In verse, the word is adikeo. Verbs in their dictionary form in Greek end, usually end with an, an omega. Uh, not always, those are irregular verbs, but th- these are regular verbs. So, now he, what he is saying here is, now therefore it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. That means you're out of fellowship, you're sinning, and it just shows what a failure you are. 
Why do you not rather accept wrong? See, accepting wrong, that's adikeo. Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? No, you yourselves do wrong and cheat. You, you do wrong and you cheat, and, and you're taking them to court for the same reason, that they do wrong and they cheat. But, but let's follow the flow here. He says, first of all, he says, Why do you not rather accept wrong, accept adikeo, no, you yourselves do adikeo. And then in verse 9, he says, Do you not know that the adikos, those who do wrong, will not inherit the kingdom of God? So he's already made it clear that all of these losers are believers, and they're saved. They're the, they're the saints that he addresses in 1 Corinthians. But when he gets down here, he's saying, uh, you know, you, you have to deal with these wrongdoers and you yourself are doing the same wrong, do you not know that wrongdoers won't inherit the kingdom of God? So it's something other than salvation. And then he lists in verse the second part of verse 9 and verse 10 and 11 a just representative list of sins. He's not being exhaustive here. He's just giving a representative list because the list over in Galatians 5 is is slightly different, and at the end of that list, Paul says, those who do practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, you're probably sitting there saying, well, what do I do? Well, you confess your sin, and you move on. These, these were not dealing with their sin. They are just uh, uh, completely giving themselves over to it. Now, the other thing that we see is in verse 11 says, and such were some of you. Now, the word you is our favorite word here in the South. It's y'all. Is that, just think with me as, as I ask you these rhetorical questions, is that singular or plural? That's plural. To whom does y'all refer? It refers to the entire congregation. Some of you all, that refers to a small group. He says, such were, past tense, some of you. In other words, a minority over here used to be characterized by these sins. Now, you say, well, well where do you get that? Well, I read chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, where Paul is listing their arrogance, their divisiveness, all of the many different sins, their immorality, uh, all of these things. In fact, in um, in First Corinthians five, he he just he lists a bunch of sins they're guilty of, and so he is saying here, some of you aren't committing these sins anymore. Corinth was known as the Las Vegas of the ancient world. What happened in Corinth stayed in Corinth. They were the lascivious lechers of the ancient world, and they were known for it. It was a seaport town, and they had military coming in there, Roman soldiers. They had all these various uh, seafarers and traders coming in, and they had all sorts of fertility religions and practices in the mystery religions, and it was a wild place to be. And so he, that's, they, all these people got saved out of that. Now, many of them are still living like they did before they were saved. 
just like a lot of Christians do today. They get saved and they still, they haven't learned anything yet. So they still live in the same way they did before they were saved. So Paul is saying such were some of you. Some of you have stopped these practices. You're growing and maturing as a believer. But you all, now he uses that plural again. So who's he talking about? Everybody in the congregation. So all of you were washed. All of you were sanctified. All of you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So he's saying all of you were saved, but some of you, only some of you have grown and have put those practices out of your life. So that's what I'm saying in this slide. Some, that is, only some were, that is, in the past, guilty of these sins, but all are justified. So some were Guilty of these sins in the past, they're not anymore. But all of them are justified. So there was some progress. So those who continue to live like they did when they were unsaved, they're going to not have rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. Now we'll get to First uh, Timothy one eight. But we know that the law is good. He's talking about the Torah here. And he says the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, somebody who's good and obedient and doing the right thing, they don't need to worry about breaking the law because they're just doing the right thing. But for the lawless and insubordinate, for the antinomian, which is everybody in our culture just about, and for the, and it, for the antinomian and the people who are rebels and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers. So we have ungodly sinners, unholy, profane, murderers of parents, manslayers, and then we get to verse 10, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers. And if there is any other thing, in case I'd left something out, if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound teaching, okay? So it's another list of sins. That's all we're trying to establish here. Not that it's the worst sin, not that it's the most evil sin, not that people whose sin nature trends in that direction are not nice or not good or, not, or can't be wonderful people. We're just saying that you can't justify this sin any more than you can justify any other sin. And Christ died for all sin. He paid the penalty for all sin. And the word that's translated as a sodomite is the word arsenokoietis. And arson comes from the uh, Greek word for the male. And koietis is the word for uh, sexual uh, activity. And so that's what it means is uh, two men engaged in sexual actions. So the point of all this is, yes, homosexuality is a sin, which means Christ died for those sins. And it means the word of God and the power of God and the grace of God is sufficient to deal with that sin in your life and any other sin in your life. There's a, um, a wonderful video. There's several of these out there by uh, Rosaria Champagne Butterfield. And I encourage you to take the opportunity to look her name up. Just YouTube her name in, uh, in the search window in YouTube. 
And she has a book that is called The Surprising Conversion. I forget the rest of it, but, but she has that title for several of her talks, and she gives her testimony. And here is a woman who, when she was, uh, from the time she was in her mid-20s until she was close to 40, I believe, she is a radical Marxist postmodern f- feminist. And when she first, she tells the story and all that's involved and it took several years, finally she went to this church of this pastor and his wife who had befriended her and she didn't know what kind of reception she would get because she had a butch haircut, she had half of her head shaved, the other half was like a flat top and she had piercings and this and that and she was dressed um, uh, just... And not like anybody else in the church, and she just stood out as much as she could, and yet the people in that congregation didn't bat an eye. They cared for her. They prayed for her because the pastor and his wife had befriended her several years before. People in the church knew who she was, and they just uh, cared about her. And the result of their demonstration of God's love and grace was what brought her to the cross. And she was saved. And now she is married to a pastor, and she talks about this all over the country. She goes on college campuses, and she goes to churches, she speaks to Christian groups, and she speaks to uh, homosexual groups. And they just give her, you can find some, I think there's one where she spoke at University of South Florida. And these groups, these people are angry at her. They don't, they don't like it at all what she says. And she has the sweetest, most gracious, kind response. And they're calling her all kinds of names. And she is just so kind. And she just reflects the love, love of Christ. It's just amazing. God would have to do a real work in me to, for me to be like that. I'm telling you. And you probably can agree with that. Uh, but it, that's how it should be. That's how we have to be. That's, that's what happens when, when God gets a hold of us and, and changes us. And we have to start with the fact that we have to be honest about homosexuality. We can't yield to the pressure of the culture and try to validate it or try to say that, that well, it's normal. That's one of the things that people try to say, well, I was born that way. It's normal. It's healthy. But uh, there's no evidence of a gay gene or anything that would be physically determinative of that. Back before 1973, homosexuality was considered a mental aberration, and it was considered, um, it was not in the list of uh, psychological uh, disease. I forget what that's called right now, but it's the big handbook on, on mental diseases. It was listed there. And then they voted on it and to take it out in 1973. Before that, it was considered a psychological disease. And Dr. Charles Socorides, who was at the meetings and was uh, an expert in the area of homosexuality and treated homosexuals for more than 20 years in his uh, psychiatric practice, described the political atmosphere leading up to the 1973 vote. He writes that during this time, quote, militant homosexual groups continue to attack any psychiatrist or psychoanalyst who dared to present his findings 
as to the psychopathology, that's the study of mental disorders, from all aspects of homosexuality before national or local meetings of psychiatrists. So they're intimidated and they're browbeaten and they're threatened and they're blackmailed in order to change what is in this, uh, it's DM, I think it was DM3, uh, disorders and mental diseases, something like that. Um, and so he says that the decision of the uh, American Psychiatric Association trustees was, quote, the medical hoax of the century. In 19, I'm excuse me, 2019, August 29th, 18 months ago, Probably uh, many of you may have missed this. Harvard Magazine, along with almost every other news source, ABC, CBS, NBC, the whole alphabet soup, reported this finding. And the Harvard Magazine said, there is, quote, there is no one gene for being gay. And though genes seem to play, see, notice that word seem, we can't be sure, they seem to play in a role in determining sexual orientation, but they don't know, and they can't define it. Um, and same-sex behavior, it's small, it's complex, and anything but deterministic. Our sin natures come to us from our parents. We, sometimes some of us can see our parents' sin natures in us. We, we understand there's something that is a proclivities that seem to be passed on, but these are just tendencies. They're not deterministic. We don't have to do these things. We don't have to respond that way. Those are just inclinations, and we all have them in various different ways and different sins. And uh, this article goes on to say that's the conclusion of a paper by an international team of researchers co-led by Benjamin Neal of the Broad Institute of Harvard and MIT, published today in the journal Science. The team combed the genomes of more than 470,000 people in the United States and the United Kingdom to see how genetic variants at millions of different places in the genome correlate with whether participants had ever had sex with someone of the same sex. The study, by far the largest such investigation of sexuality to date, was made possible by combining genetic and behavioral data from more than 400,000 people from the UK's Biobank study and from 70,000 customers of the genetic test company 23andMe, who opted in to have their data used for research. So there's no such thing as a gay gene. There's no evidence that you're born that way uh, other than you're born with certain inclinations uh, and tendencies in the sin nature. One cannot find examples. There are some things that can be demonstrated as being genetic, left-handedness in some of our races, for example. There's absolutely no evidence that homosexuality is genetic, the article uh, concluded. Uh, Lome e, Lorne E. Brown, MD, in a recent interview summed up how one actually becomes a homosexual. He said, I'm deeply disturbed at the apparent acceptance of the false notion that homosexually active people are made that way and cannot help it. I've never seen such evidence in any of the 
uh, medical literature supporting the theory of biological determinants for homosexual activity. Were there any valid evidence of biological determinants for this behavior? You may be sure the psychiatric literature would be full of it because psychiatrists are so regularly baffled and defeated by this problem. Homosexuality is not determined. The homosexual becomes one by a series of choices. He doesn't just wake up one day and say, I'm going to be homosexual. There are probably tens of thousands of choices that are made ahead of time, none of which may seem to directly relate to even uh, sexual activity, but they set them up for this. So that's what he is saying. He says, uh, these choices may seem imperceptible to him because they are not at first conscious choices to homosexual activity. Most frequently, they are those of social attraction for reasons other than sexual to a person of the same sex. As the friendship becomes more intimate, some sexual stimulation occurs, and if there is not a prior commitment to the wrongness or at least the undesirability of homosexual conduct, this develops into overt acts. He then says homosexuality is a harmful condition causing great mental and emotional suffering. Homosexuals desperately want to believe and have us believe that their state is gay, normal, and acceptable. They would believe that it is genetic and or congenital or at least predetermined uh, because then it wouldn't be their fault. But the reality is we all have a predisposition more than a predisposition to sin. And Christ died for every single sin. And we're no better than somebody with some other sinful proclivity. And Christ died for all of us. And that's grace. And so we should always be dealing with everybody in grace and kindness and uh, not out of any kind of animosity. It's very hard when you have people who are forcing you to say that what they, they are doing is okay, forcing you to give approval. And we have to decide, are we going to stick with the Word of God or are we going to stick with experience? And that's very hard for some parents. It's very hard for people who have close friends, but we have to decide. That's the issue for our Christian life. And we have to be an example of the grace of God and the love of Christ to all of these people, to everyone, whether this is the problem or whether it's something else. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we thank you for the opportunities to look at your word and to understand the absolute truth and these issues related to gender identity, sexual identity, sexual orientation, all of these different things that are uh, flooding the news, making it seem like this is much more so than, than it ever was before. Uh, and in many cases, it is. Um, Father, we pray that we as believers may reflect the love of Christ, your love to them, and that we may be patient, kind, gentle, and learning how to best emulate Christ for them. Father, we pray that in this country, as things continue in the trajectory they've been going for many, many decades, we pray that you would give us the strength through the Holy Spirit to correctly, wisely, graciously handle these situations. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.